Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Uh, Would you stand for the reading of the Word of God, please? Reading out of Matthew chapter 27, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he's been raised from the dead. And this last deception, it'll be worse than the first. Take a guard. Pilate answered, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word and upon our ears and our hearts and minds to receive today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All kidding aside, I'm glad you're here, whether this is your first time or your first time in the last year, whatever the case may be. Um, I almost was not here. Uh, earlier this week, uh, my son and I were driving in my uh, Pontiac G8, and we're coming down uh, 16-mile, roughly from Grosbeck to Garfield, and as we're getting right across Garfield, doing 55, which was the speed limit, um, the light had been green for quite some time, so I don't know what took place in someone's mind, but we're about 100 feet or less moving at 55 to the intersection when suddenly not one but two cars come right through the intersection. And one was quite large. And I'm like, and the second one right behind that one. And this one turned right on 16. They were going to do the flip. So now, because of the speed and action of everything, they, we just missed them. So they turned. So we're now running parallel to them. And I'm going like, and the woman in the car is going like, and Pac said she had a phone on. And so I think she was watching the first car. And just when they kept moving, kept moving. But I don't know what was with the first car. And so, you know, we came within probably five seconds, maybe eight seconds of, of a bad case of dead. And um, death is, you know, so permanent. <laughs> or is it? That's what we're going to talk about a little bit here today. I have with me today a um, coin. This coin is Spanish coin. From 1737. So if I leave it lying around and you find it, it's mine. <laughs> okay? And it has on it um, the motto of the Spanish Empire in that time period. We'll come back to that a little bit later in our conversation. Instead, let's take a look here. We've been talking about Jesus, if you've missed it. Or if you've been following online, and uh, um, we talk about Jesus as a teacher, 
And what did he talk about? He talked about the kingdom of God. That was his theme. That was his whole passionate theme. Uh, a new way of living, a new um, rulership, a new culture, a new way of operating things that, that had God at the center of it. Uh, we talked about him as the Lamb of God. John the Baptist sees him walking one point in sight and says, there goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth, uh, of the world. Um, Jewish people up until that time, and, and including the time of Jesus, would sacrifice lambs on a regular day time at Passover. Uh, a death had to pay for sins, and so it was the death of the lamb. It, it was the scapegoat, if you will, of all those things. But Jesus is going to be the Lamb of God, the one who sacrificed once and for all, for all sin. No more bloody sacrifices. That's why you didn't have to pass that on the way inside today here. And we talked about him as the humble king, the one who enters into Jerusalem. Today I want to talk to you about him as the risen one. As we look into this passage of scripture, we find that, that after the crucifixion, so Jesus is beaten badly with a, a cat of nine tails, nine different pieces of metal at the end of straps that would have torn into his flesh, laid a bear. Some people died from just the beating. Uh, he would have had to drag a very heavy beam or cross and carry that through the city streets while people hurled insults and threw things at him. They would have taken and, and attached him on the ground to this cross by pounding nails into his hands and his palms and into his uh, um, ankles there. And then they would have raised that up and dropped it into the ground and the tearing that that would have done. And then the exposure of the sun, all that was involved, and eventually he dies. <laughs> says, it is finished. Take him down, they put him inside of a tomb, a tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. And... Um, then they roll this huge stone across it. And that should be the end of the story. But the Pharisees and the leaders remembered that this guy had said some things about rising again, and that concerned them. And so they go to Pilate, and they said, look, we remember this happening, and so we want to make sure that this doesn't take place, that you know some of his disciples don't steal the body and then pass a story around and create some upheaval. And this is as much in your interest as a Roman leader as it is in ours. So Pilate says to take a guard, okay, and go make it as secure as you can. So he takes a guard. Now, they could have used the temple guard, but the temple guard were more like security guards. Nothing against security guards, but they had nothing to do with the hardcore special forces of the Roman Empire. Roman uh, soldiers were literally legendary as well as legionary. And... Um, they had a, 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 an ability, a discipline, and this is who they wanted. They didn't want anybody that was possibly Jewish that could have possibly even been a hidden disciple of Jesus. These were a disinterested party. These were professional soldiers, hardcore. These were the guys who, who possibly, not probably, but possibly could have even been the same ones who were playing dice and gambling for the clothes of Jesus at the foot of his own cross. As the guys bleeding up there and dying. That's how hardcore these guys were. Even if they weren't the specific ones, this was the type of individual. Disciplined, violent, used to death, and above all, used to authority and respecting authority. So no temple guards, but these guys. And they're going to take these guards, and, and, and there was probably, when it says take a guard, it probably means um, about four people or so. And uh, um, you can say, why, why four people? Okay, thank you for asking that. <laughs> because a guard in that day generally meant four people. And for this reason, if you're standing guard at a location, then you have one on either side, 
and you have two others that are either on the flanks or if it's a long period of time, those ties get their sleep, we stand guard. And then we rotate so that you always have two. Now, it could have been more, but it was a minimum of four. And they would have, if they had to have slept through the night or felt sleepy, rotate that. And that was very important that they have the four and not just two or something else because to be asleep on guard duty was a punishment that resulted in death. You could be executed for that. So you've got this hardcore uh, type of soldier that is now in charge of the area. They go along. They're equipped with, with uh, armor, a short sword that was classic for the Romans, a spear, a dagger. Uh, they were tough. They're there in place. Now on top of that, they would have rolled a stone, um, would have been in front of the grave, and there would have been an inclined channel. Now, what do I mean, inclined? It's, it's, it's inclined this way, so the stone is resting here. But when we're ready to seal the, 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 the uh, tomb, we take away a little block here, and this stone is pretty massively heavy. It just kind of... and slaps into place. Now, on top of it, it says that they sealed the tomb. That doesn't mean they put super glue around the edges. What it means is they took a rope that would have gone across, an official rope across here, and they would have put a blob of wax over here and a blob of wax over here, and they would have put the seal of Rome upon that. You could not move this stone without taking away from the seal that was in place. This is what had taken place with this posting of a guard, with this putting of a seal, with this establishment of this stone. In contrast, you have a bunch of disciples who have been deeply um, disoriented and scattered and fearful. This is who they're guarding against. And so that's the setting that you have. Massive stone, seal and authority of Rome, even a mess with that would have been an executionary type affair. And then these professional, hard-bitten non-influenced by Jewish thought whatsoever, standing guard, if need be, on an alternating basis. So, having said that, we come to Matthew chapter 28. It says, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, so Saturday's done, it's now Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. As they're going along, Incidentally, one other passage that I won't put up there for you, but it's in Mark chapter 16, verse 1 says they'd, they'd gone early to have spices so they could anoint the body. They apparently weren't aware that it had been sealed. They weren't aware that there was a guard on the stone. This is their first time coming. But even as they're going, they're saying this, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? So it's occurring to them as they're going along. They weren't thinking until they're ready on the road and they're getting along. And it's just about to get there. They wait a minute. It's, it's, it's you and me and we're two women and we're not into big heavy roll. I mean, this is a heavy stone. We didn't think this through, really. Who's going to roll the stone away for us to get at the body and treat the body? And so they're processing this, but kind of on the way and maybe thinking maybe they can try and whatever. Suddenly, there's this violent earthquake in verse 2. I mean, it was over the whole planet, but it's talked about in verse 2. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone. And then this part to me always cracks me up a bit. Sat on it. This is one of the coolest angels ever. He comes along and goes, and then as the stone's rolled, he goes, sits here and goes, like, I'm cool, I'm just resting out here waiting for people to notice what I did. (laughs) And along with this, it says, um, his appearance was like lightning. And his clothes were white as snow. 
And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now, the standard translation, I think, is that they fainted. Personally, I've watched enough uh, of things and looked enough to know that there are sometimes when you fight and there's sometimes when you play dead. And I personally think these guys sat there and were so afraid. It's like, <gasps> one guy's like, is he gone yet? No, he's not gone yet. Shut up. Because they're not going to face this thing. They knew this was an overwhelming force that they could not deal with the supernaturalness of what was taking place. It was outside of their reality. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has, what's that word? Risen. Risen. You guys are way ahead of first service, I've got to tell you. Just, you're my favorites. <laughs> Just as he said, don't tell first service. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Okay? So they've seen this experience. The, the stone is rolled away. They're realizing what's taking place. And so um, they're now going to go, and the guard's going to go tell what's happening, and uh, the ladies are going to go tell what's taking place. Now, as they go... The ladies are going to go off, and they're going to talk to Peter and the rest of the boys. The guards, meanwhile, at least some of them, doesn't appear to be all of them. It says in verse 11, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything. So that means some of the other ones either just reported to their command post, or they may have deserted. Just realize, they just, they just blew their assignment. And what are they going to say? Well, this really shiny big thing showed up, you know, and, and we ran away. So did you get any blood from them at all? No, we just we played dead. So whatever took place, only a few of them go and report. When the chief priests had met with the elders, they devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were sleeping. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. What that means is, we know you should be killed for this. But you know, we're, we're going to take care of that. We're going to take care of the boss, and we're going to give you money. Just have the story. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and the story's been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The story gets around. And so the story was that the disciples had come and stolen the body. Um, that, or, or one of the other theories was that, that somehow, that has been argued to this day even, is that Jesus somehow in the cool of the cave resuscitated himself. And, and, and woke back up. He was just really just swooning or fainted for the time. One person addressed this in a humorous letter to the editor of a magazine. said this in this fictional letter. Dear Eutychius, our preacher said on Easter that Jesus just swooned on the cross and that the disciples nursed him back to health. What do you think, sincerely bewildered? Dear bewildered, beat your preacher with a cat of nine tails with 39 heavy strokes. Nail him to a cross, hang him in the sun for six hours, run a spear through his heart, embalm him, put him in an airless tomb for 36 hours, and see what happens. <laughs> Sincerely, you take this. It's unreasonable. It's ridiculous. On top of it, you have to understand how, and I'll try to illustrate this for you a little bit. If the stone is here, Again, an inclined channel, a large stone. I've been and seen some of these tombs, and the, the, the stone's higher than I am. It's a heavy stone. I'm in fairly good shape. I'd be having trouble moving that by myself, let alone moving it inclined upward to get it 
away from there. But I might possibly, with a few friends, have a chance to do that because I'm outside of it and I'm grabbing, here's the wall, I'm grabbing it from these things. You see, I've got a grip to try and rotate it with if I have enough gang to meet with me. But remember, the disciples are scattered. They're terrified. They're in no mood to go up against Roman soldiers, let alone all the rest of the stuff to do that. And the argument being made is that somehow from Jesus inside recovers. Understand, you're inside the tomb. The wall is here. I don't have a grip on this stone. I, I hope you're understanding this in your brain here, a bit in your mind. The only way I can do this is possibly I put enough pressure on the stone, pressure on the stone, and work it up a little bit to get there so I can get a grip up here and pull it all the way up that incline, maybe. And, and it's a good thing that I haven't been stabbed or hung out to dry or crucified, or I wouldn't have the strength to do that. It's a ridiculous consideration. There's no way that Jesus could have done it. And the disciples, to be frank, wouldn't have done it. So here's what you've got. A cover-up, a lie. And, and if it was true the guards were asleep... Well, to believe all of this, we have to believe, one, that they were asleep, all of them, when the specific nature of the guard was to alternate that, and they knew that the results of violating that would have been death. Also, they were so deeply asleep that none of them were awakened by the work and exertion and the necessary noise of all these guys coming along to roll this stone away or from the completely destroyed body within doing otherwise. And then here's the final thing. If all the soldiers were so soundly asleep, how'd they know who stole the body? But this was the lie. This was the thing that had been said and spread not just that time, but continues even to this day. It's a ridiculous consideration. During the season of in our country, there's a tendency to get a little silly with the press. And so you see different stories come out. Newsflash, we've just discovered Jesus' wife. Or newsflash, something else. And every single time you track it down, it's just not true. It's not real. It doesn't pan out. Breaking news. The body of Jesus Christ was discovered by archaeologists working just outside Jerusalem today. That is a newsflash that you are never, ever going to see. Because that body doesn't exist in that tomb. You're never going to hear that. Instead, what we had was a deception that continued on. And yet J.C. Ryle, a writer from way back, said, The resurrection is a fact better attested than any event recorded in history, whether ancient or modern. Charles Colson, how many of you guys know that name? bunch of you do. Some of the younger ones might not recall the name. Chuck Colson was an ex-Marine officer. He was a counselor to the President of the United States, President Nixon. There was a little event called Watergate. I know for those of you that weren't born in that time period, nothing really exists before that time. But, but it was a really major issue. It was involving deception and lies that ultimately brought down the President of the United States. And Colson was right in the middle of the whole thing. Now he ends up being sent to prison for his activities. And in prison, he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Deeply, genuinely, powerfully. He ends up establishing something called Prison Fellowship and spent the remainder of his life ministering to prisoners around the world. Colson said this, I know the resurrection is a fact. 
And Watergate proved it to me. How? He said, because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate, he said, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and we couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? He said, absolutely impossible. Absolutely impossible. Another feature to keep in mind as we look at this whole situation and realize this stone, massive physical presence that's rolled away, this seal of authority that was death itself to break is shattered. These professional, hard-bitten soldiers are scattered. And supposedly all this is a lie. But what you have after this event is you have individuals of the Jewish faith raised as Orthodox Jews who suddenly begin to proclaim loudly and consistently that the event did happen, that they saw a risen Christ, that they engaged with him in conversation, that they touched him. And they went to their deaths without recanting that. They did not have their best lives now. They didn't go out and get a book deal. They didn't make money on the deal. They all died rather than recant of that truth that we are told by the people of the time was a lie. The Jewish people were so committed to the nature of God that that they wouldn't write his name down. To this day, we don't know if the name that Moses has given, I am, we know that's the name, but we don't know if it's Yahweh or if it's Jehovah or how. The reason why is because all we have is Y-H-W-H. Why? No, not Y-H-W-H. Why? But I'm saying Y-W-H-Y. Why? Because they took the vowels out. Why? Because they didn't want to mispronounce the name of God and in that way possibly risk the wrath of a holy God. The idea that God would come in the flesh was something that to them was complete blasphemy. That's part of the reason why the Pharisees attacked Jesus on this. To this day, there are Jewish people that if you have them write out God, all they'll put is G and D. They'll omit the other part. So Jesus dies. He rises again. And then this scattered, demoralized group of believers, these Jewish believers suddenly are worshiping him as God. A massive paradigm shift in their belief system, and yet they embrace it. There's something incredible about that. Now, I talked to you a little bit about the coins that I had here, this particular one. And this particular one is kind of a special one to me in some ways. But to have you understand it and how it relates to today, I have to give you a little geography history lesson. And I know how much we love geography and history as Americans. So if you can picture in your mind the Mediterranean uh, Sea, okay? Italy and, and, and Spain and everything else a little up north, Africa, down south, Israel in the Middle East out here. And then on the far western area, it narrows down to just a little strait of what's called the Straits of Gibraltar. Spain on one side, Africa on the other side. Uh, Gibraltar is currently ruled by Britain, but originally it's Spanish territory. Once you sail through these straits, you're into the Atlantic. Now for the known world of the time, you went off the map. 
In fact, in ancient uh, um, uh, Greek mythology, Hercules built two huge pillars at the Straits of Gibraltar, one on either side, and inscribed on those pillars a phrase. And the phrase was non plus ultra or ne plus ultra. And what was inscribed on those pillars on either side of the straits that you would see if you went through those straits and out into the Atlantic Ocean was basically not more beyond. In other words, it was a way of saying to anyone, let there not be more sailing beyond this point. In other words, it was a way of saying there's nothing else beyond there. There's a wide open ocean, and if you sail far enough, you are going to sail over the edge of the earth and fall off. There's actually a group today called the Flat Earth Society that believes the earth's flat. Just for the record, I do not believe that. (laughs) But they did. And so the idea is if I go out in that ocean, nobody knows what's out there. We know what's back here, but we don't know anything out there. And you're going to sail off the end of the, of the, of the earth, or there are monsters that are going to consume you. And so the Spanish of that time had put on the previous coins, previous to this one, and on their coat of arms, had this phrase, non plus ultra. And today in our society, in other ways, it's come to mean the very ultimate best. But in this case, it meant there's nothing beyond this. And they were kind of proud of the fact that we're the farthest part of Europe, and there's nothing beyond this. We're the complete and total thing. That's it. And that was true up until a little ways back. And you might have heard about this. There was this guy who decided there was something beyond those pillars. So he gets a couple of ships together, and he sails west. And amazingly, he doesn't fall off the edge of the planet. The monsters don't consume him. People wait, thinking they've seen the last of this guy. And then suddenly, after months and months of time, he shows back up. He survived the trip. In fact, he comes back and he says, not only are there no monsters beyond or does the planet drop off the edge, he said, there's an incredible land that's rich and beautiful. It's beyond your wildest imaginations. You guys have heard this story, haven't you? The guy's name was Christopher. You know, what's his last name? Okay, so you know the story. So he comes back. Christopher, incidentally, means one who bears Christ within him. Just an interesting side note. So suddenly they realize that our motto is wrong. And so what happened is Spanish changed their motto from non plus ultra, there's nothing more beyond, to plus ultra. Maybe you can see this. I'll show you the coin, the first coin, first portion of the coin here I'll show you real quick. That's the overall coin. You can see the pillars of Hercules. You may not be able to see the wrapping around, but this close-up will help you out a little bit more. You can see over here, can you make that word out? What does it say? Plus. Plus. And over here, you can't quite see it as well because the U's hidden and the A's hidden, but that's an LTNR. It's ultra, plus ultra. So they changed the motto so that on this coin, it says plus ultra. In other words, there's more beyond. There's more beyond. What had changed the whole situation in the story? Simply this. Someone had gone beyond and come back. Someone had gone where they said there's nothing else out there but darkness and death. He came back and said, oh no, there's life and it's incredible and it's beautiful. And it opened up a whole new world. So Spain changed its motto because of one man. As we look at what we're talking about here today, we need to understand and realize that for centuries, people stood over the graves of their loved ones 
a hole in the ground wondering if there's anything more out there or if this is the ending of it all. Then a young man went off the edge of the earth, went into hell itself, and then the Son of God stepped out of the grave and declared, there is more beyond. There is a life beyond belief. There's a heavenly father that is there to greet you and that life can be yours. There is life beyond the grave. Now, I'll be honest. I'm not into suffering. I'll do it if I have to. Most of us will. And so a long lingering illness and death, I'm not into. But, but maybe that's what will be the case. But I will tell you this. Dying, if this had happened this past week in that accident, doesn't bother me a bit. Because I know, because of Christ and his resurrection, I know where I would be. I know that I'm going to be in a place beyond belief. Why? Because I'm such a great guy. <laughs> and I'm more righteous than, than Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. They got nothing on me. You guys know better, and that's why you're laughing. And at home, they've practically turned off the TV already. <laughs> because you know better. Ask my family. They know better. <laughs> that was not a family member, just for the record. It's just a former member of the church. That's all. No, we all know. We all stumble. We all fall. That doesn't justify our sin. Ever. Oh, we all fall. We all sin. We just no. Jesus said, "Go and sin no more." But also means that whatever sin you've done, whatever darkness you've walked into, it is never dark enough, deep enough, or deadly enough that the risen Christ cannot draw you out of that and restore you again. And when that grace has been accepted, when we realize that our sin has been paid for, no longer slaughtering of lambs, but our sin that required our death because we've offended a holy God, that now Christ comes as the Lamb of God, and at the same time he's being crucified, the Passover lambs are being sacrificed in the temple, and now he's the Passover lamb for all time, that we recognize and accept that, and the proof of it is that he died and then he rose again. And when we have that acceptance, that then God looks upon Jesus' rightness, his righteousness, and not on ours. And now we're motivated to live lives differently. But it's not because we live those lives in that way that we're accepted, but because of Christ. Now in the midst of all of this, with the seal of Rome broken, with the scattering of the guards, with, with the ro stone rolled away, there's this man returning that's saying there's something more beyond this. But there was a lie that was propagated that day that continues on as people try to assemble and say this didn't happen, it didn't occur. And one of those individuals was a young man named Paul. At the time, he was called Saul, but later his name is changed to Paul. And he is somebody who, who was so convinced of the lie and so committed to a standard view of God that he couldn't accept this. He was enraged at the very thought of it. And so he begins to persecute Christians left and right. He pursues them everywhere. He becomes the person who's holding the coats of others as they're stoning Stephen. He's an intense, passionate, brilliant man, but he believes the lie of the Pharisees and of the soldiers. And so he buys into this in a heavy way. But then at one point in time, he's going to pursue the Christians on the road to Damascus, 
Suddenly Christ reveals himself to him and he's knocked off his donkey and you can interpret that however you want. And he comes to realize that Christ is real. His paradigm is massively shifted in his understanding of God. And this man who believed the lie and pursued the Christians suddenly becomes one of the most ardent, apologetic, and, 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 and person purveying the, the Christian faith. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this. He says, I passed on to you, listen to this, of what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. And it's this, and this is for some of you here this morning. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. It's like, I, I know I believed a lie, but this is the truth. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. Do not listen to the Pharisees and the soldiers that have been bought off. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. You could ask them, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I'd been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. I saw him. I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. Don't you understand? I persecuted God's church. I only bought into the lie. I propagated it. He goes on to us today and says, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sin and you have no hope. Then those also who have fallen asleep who have already died in Christ are also lost. But he goes on to say, but Christ, by my own witness, has indeed been raised from the dead. And then he gives us our theology. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, and now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given a new life. So Paul makes the stance that he makes. At a later time, he says, you know, with all my book learning and all my knowledge and all my claim to being a Roman citizen and all the passport that means and all for him, I want to know only one thing and be known for only one thing. And that is Christ and him crucified. He says, of all my learning and all my pedigree and all my nationality and all the other positioning, I don't want to boast in anything. God forbid that I should boast in anything but the cross of Christ. This morning, on this Easter day, I offer you nothing. I have no authority. I can't save you. I cannot rescue you. I offer you nothing. But Christ offers you everything. And he has the authority to do so. Why? Because he's the one person in all of time and space, in all the history of the world, who went to the edge of the world, went over into the darkness of the pit, and came back and said, there's a place beyond belief for you, and I'm here to tell you about it. There's a father who, despite your deepest, darkest sin, will embrace you and draw you in if you'll repent of that sin and set it aside. Only one person has ever come out of the grave 
massive stone rolled away. A seal of authority shattered without a thought. Professional hard-bitten soldiers in place. And Paul, even, who believed it at first, believes now the truth. He says, I would only know Christ and him crucified. This morning, in this place and in this time, this is what is offered to you. Once we thought there was nothing beyond just this world, this flesh. But somebody, and not just anybody, the Son of God in the flesh came. He went beyond those pillars of Hercules. He broke all the paradigms. And today, as a result of it, we have hope. We have faith. We have strength. The same thing that drove those disciples on in the midst of all sorts of conflicts that they dealt with. So this morning, whether you're here in this room, in the atrium, or in the stream right now, I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes and bow your heads with me this morning. Because while I know many of us have embraced and accepted this, there are inevitably those of us in this gathering who have not. We came with a friend, or we just are so processing, or all these things dig within us. Or maybe you feel like your sin is too great, God could never forgive you. And that's not true, that's a lie. There are so many lies that you've been told. There are so many massive stones that have been piled on top of you that have closed you in. And no, you are too weak to close and rip that out by yourself. But God is not. And this morning, I believe that there are ministering angels in this place that are prepared to roll the stone off your grave. Even if it was a grave, as the song that Emily sang is one of your own making, he can still undo it. So this morning, with no one looking around, please, I'm asking you, if you're prepared this morning to face your sin, to offer it to a God who loves you so much that he sacrificed his own son on a cross, that he died, was buried, but then rose again, and you can have faith to believe that today and accept him, and the scripture says this day you will be born again. You become part of the kingdom of God, part of the family of God. If that's you this morning with no one else looking around, please just raise your hand. I want to pray with you just quickly on the ground floor first. Okay, yes. Anyone else? Quickly, I see it. God does too. Anyone else? Just quickly. All right? All right. A dozen or more on the ground floor. I want to look in the balcony quickly with no one looking around. But if that's you and you're in the balcony, just, just raise your hand quickly. Anybody up there? Okay, yep, I see that too. All right, I'm not in the atrium, but God sees where you're at out there. And you're accountable to him. And those of you that are on the stream right now in the quietness of your own home, one of my best friends accepted Christ when he was just kneeling by the the bed of of a hotel room. And you can too this morning. And so, Father, we come to you this morning. God, we once thought there was nothing more to this life. And so we grabbed for everything we could. We did whatever we wanted. But that did not satisfy, and it never does. This morning, we have become aware, a gathering of us, a dozen or more of us, 18 or 20 of us have come aware, just in this room alone, that our sin is something that only you can resolve. And this morning, we are convinced no longer of the lie that has held us bound in the grave, 
but of the truth of your resurrection. And that there is a life beyond this. That there is a future for us, both here and in the future ahead. That there's a beauty and a grace that we can enter into. And as we accept that today and repent of our sin, I pray, Lord God, that each individual who is doing that now would have a sense of your Holy Spirit and a quickening in their heart and mind and a birth that is new in their lives. Father, this morning we pause in the midst of all else we do and everything else to come before your face and worship you. Martin Luther, the original, um, he and his wife Katie had a really kind of funny relationship. And Martin was prone to depression at different times and he had been through a particularly long period of one and it was sustaining for a while. So one day Katie comes downstairs all dressed in black and Martin says, who died? And she said, God has. And he says, no, he hasn't. And she says, then why don't you live like it and act like it? (laughs) Next week, we begin a series of three parts until generations. On this platform, even right now, are five different um, sets of multi-generational family. And I want to talk to you about the meaning of that and what it is to be this church over the next three weeks of time. Um, Young people particularly, I'd like to be speaking to you particularly. So I want you to be aware of that. Now, we have had a tradition in this church for a number of years of closing out in a very traditional fashion. And it goes like this. I say, Christ is risen. And you say, he is risen indeed. Please know that it's not has, it's is, because he still is, okay? So I'm just going to say, and we're going to do it three times and building up to a point where we let the neighbors know that there's been a violation of the noise, you know, stuff, all right? So just simple. I'm just going to say, Christ is risen. You're going to say, he is risen indeed. Okay, so, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Then go out and live like it and act like it. Okay? Father, I thank you for the truth of your resurrection. I thank you for showing us there's something beyond and coming back and and letting us know that and, and that you're preparing even now a place for us. And while there'll be temporary struggles in this world, Lord God, our eyes are not to be on those or upon other people, but upon the task that you set for us, the race we're to run, that ultimately will find us in your arms. So God, give us the strength we need. Give us the joy of this day and let it sustain us through the remainder of our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray this and the church said, amen, amen. God bless you next week.